Chapter 15 I hung around outside Steve's front door. Was this a bad idea? What was I going to say? I had done one selfish thing in making friends with Shelley. Would I make that too by messing up Steve's life as well? Granted, it was already a mess, but what improvement could I make to it in under 24 hours? I turned to leave, but the words 24 hours seemed to bounce around inside my head. That wasn't long enough for me to grow on him. It took weeks for him to start thinking of me as a friend rather than an annoying ghost. Maybe I could help him, though. I banged on the door before giving myself a chance to back out. Can I help you? Steve asked, peering out from behind the door. His hair looked like one of those hairstyle gel advertisements gone wrong. It had a unique style, but it wasn't one which anyone would want to emulate. You need to sort yourself out, I said, wishing I had at least taken the time to prepare what I wanted to say to him. Excuse me? I didn't blame him for the indignance in his voice. It's not the done thing to knock on a stranger's door and demand they sort their life out, even if they do in fact need to sort their life out. So what if you didn't complete your journalism degree? You're a damn good journalist. And if you cleaned up your house a little more, tidied up your appearance and got out there to go after the kind of stories where you interact with large groups of people, you would feel less cluttered and weighed down and less alone. And you know what else? We all feel alone sometimes. So what if you're more alone than other people because you see ghosts and they don't? And so what if you have to hide that part of yourself from people? We've all got something that makes us different, something that people would be put off by. This is 2020 though, and at least people are more open to ghosts and paranormal activity. If this was hundreds of years ago, you might be burnt as a witch. Just think about that next time you're feeling sorry for yourself. I finally stopped talking, aware that he was staring at me. His mouth opened, but he stayed silent as if all the words had been taken away. Who are you? He managed to say. A friend, I said, before I turned and left him on his doorstep to contemplate the words of a seemingly mad woman, who he didn't know, despite me knowing things I couldn't know about him. Even then I understood I missed a chance to really get to know him, because of how self-absorbed I was when I discovered he was the only one with the ability to see me. I returned to my mum's house for the night. I could have gone to see Emma, but there was nothing more for me to do to warn her of Paul and nothing profound enough to change all the years we wasted while drifting apart. I stared at the ceiling while trying to get to sleep in my old room. There was a small double bed and a chest of drawers in the room, but my mind drifted to a time when two single beds, two chests of drawers and a wardrobe all made the room seem more cramped. I always felt like we constantly fought for space as Emma tried to sneak her clothes into my drawers or my side of the wardrobe. I closed my eyes, seeing the images in my mind. Me and Emma arguing over space, or clothes, such as her borrowing my clothes and never returning them. The night I thought Dad died was different, though. I drifted off to sleep and dreamt of that night. Your dad passed away in the hospital. His body became too weak to fight the cancer any longer, Mum said. The lack of tears at the time made me assume I shouldn't cry either. I needed to be strong for Emma. Mum cried later, enough for the three of us. I held my sister's hand, something I rarely did. She called out for Dad. Of course she did. Even in the dream and armed with the knowledge that Dad was still alive, I wanted to cry. 
Where did he go? became Emma's catchphrase for months. I had no answer for her. Heaven, the next life, somewhere else. I threw random ideas at her. I couldn't change the dream to tell her that he might be watching over her. Or at least he might if he was actually dead. I woke up with the urge to punch the wall. Dad was alive. Would I rather he was dead? Of course not. I even understood why Mum lied and how she had to keep up the pretense. You can't miss school, not with exams coming, she told me when I pleaded to go to the funeral. She even stood in the kitchen wearing a black dress when I returned home from school. It was just a quiet sermon before the cremation. He wouldn't have wanted a fuss, she told me when I asked. I wanted a big fuss over my life about to be cut short. I wanted dramatic tear-jerking songs and wailing like in some other cultures. Afterwards, sir, I wanted people to move on, with the exception of Tim. I wanted him to rot in jail for the rest of his life, which I hoped would be short but miserable. If television was to be believed, he'd be somebody's bitch soon enough. Maybe the things I wanted were selfish. I started to change after the day I found myself standing in the morgue next to my dead body. But it was subtle, rather than an unrecognisable transformation. I still hoped for public outpourings of grief from time to time. It's only natural to want people to miss you after you're gone. I got up and dressed shortly after 6am. It was getting light out, signalling the beginning of autumn when mornings would become lighter later and darkness would arrive sooner in the evenings. It would be dark when I died, I acknowledged. The acceptance which washed over me gave me a strange kind of peace I'd never be able to explain, unless the person I was talking to also had inside knowledge of how their own life would reach an abrupt end. Before leaving my mum's house, I placed Tim's ID under the pillow on my bed, then put my makeup bag in my rucksack. I hoped my mum would find a driving licence later and the lipstick in my makeup bag could be used to write the name of my killer. I ran all the way to Emma's flat, even though she lived two miles away from mum and I've never been athletic. There was no mirror, but I imagined my face close to a shade of purple. The wheezing sound in my throat and nostrils must have made me sound even closer to death than I already was. Emma answered the door, muttering something. Her hair was dislevelled, and her face unusually makeup-free. Despite our lack of closeness over the years, I thought I saw concern flash across her face. Sarah, what's wrong? she asked, beckoning me inside and shutting the door behind us. The way she locked the door using the top and bottom bolt, one key, a Yale lock and a chain made me wonder what she was so afraid of to make her go to so much trouble securing her door. Ermston didn't have a high enough crime rate to warrant all those security measures. She wanted to keep someone out, but who? I, I just need to talk to you. I was finally there and I had no idea what to say. It's not even 7am, she replied. She lifted her hand to her hair and I saw a bracelet with a heart-shaped charm as the sleeve of her robe slid down her arm to reveal her wrist. Paul bought it for my 21st birthday. I recalled taking it off before bed as I always did, a few months before my murder. Then I woke up the next morning, it was nowhere to be seen. 
I pushed that realisation to the back of my mind. The bracelet wasn't why I was there. I already knew Emma and Paul went behind my back. Him stealing back the bracelet he bought me so he could give it to Emma didn't register as newsworthy in the grand scheme of things. This is going to sound strange, but I began trying to find the right words. Go on, she urged. I'm sorry we weren't close like sisters should be. You're right, that is strange. You apologising to me. I've been thinking about this a lot. If something happened to me, I wouldn't want things with us to be the way they are now. Are you dying? She asked. Her expression was unreasonable. I couldn't tell if the idea of me dying made her feel worried or if the prospect didn't concern her either way. No, I mean, yes, maybe. Well, which is it? Aren't we all dying from the moment we're born? I asked, realising how naff the words sounded, even while I was still speaking them. You woke me up for this, she snapped, turning back to the door. She was going to kick me out if I didn't say anything else. I didn't want the last time she saw me to end with her telling me to leave her flat. I'm sorry for my part in how things never worked out between us. And I want you to know I forgive you for your part. Just, just what? She began unlocking the door. Paul was never a good choice for either of us. She turned the key, glaring at me. Her eyes only looked away long enough to turn the yellow lock and slide the chain open. Out! I don't know what this is, but I'm too tired for it and I've got a lot to sort out today. It's okay, I said, resting my hand on her free arm as she used her other hand to pull the door open. Really, it's okay. The last thing I wanted was for her to look back at this and feel guilty for turning me away just hours before my brutal murder. You couldn't have done anything to change things. Remember that. She rolled her eyes. Whatever, she snapped. I told myself Emma had no way of understanding what I was talking about or what would happen later that day. As I walked away, I heard beeps on behind her door as though she was setting an alarm system. It was my turn to roll my eyes. Nobody was getting past all those locks. The alarm was unnecessary. Before going to work, I found the alley where I felt sure I was murdered. It wasn't easy with so many alleys everywhere I went, but there were always so many. Maybe I just noticed them more. I used the lipstick and wrote Tim in enormous letters beside the bin near where I'd seen my dying body left behind during the recollection of my own murder. When I arrived at work later that morning, the stony expression on my manager's face looked even more unwelcoming than my sister kicking me out of her flat at 7am. You decided to show up for work then? Well done you. Sorry. I was ill yesterday. I don't care what problems you and Paul might have, but it doesn't affect work, unless you no longer want to work here. Yes, sorry, I said. Its expression changed slightly. I'm guessing he expected an argument of me to plead with him or try to explain my absence. It seemed pointless to try any of these tactics, so... Get to work, he barked at me. The only reason I didn't tell him to stick his job was I assumed I should do things the same as the first time around, or as much as I could. I had deviated enough. I found Shelley standing by the lockers. Tim came in here yesterday looking for you. 
I thought he might have recognised me, but I don't think he did. He's not happy with you, though. I shrugged, but I hadn't thought about seeing Tim until that evening. I realised I might have to deal with him sooner. He showed up at lunchtime. I couldn't go to the kitchen to avoid him because I was already avoiding Paul and wanted me to tell him why he hadn't come home the previous evening. He stole my wallet, Tim hissed at me, grabbing my arm. His fingers dug into my flesh. I didn't. I tried without success to pull my arm away. Don't be smart with me. Your friend grubbed me as a distraction and you both ran off with my wallet. I don't know what you're talking about. I looked at him, hoping my expression conveyed confusion. Tell me who the other one is and I'll go easy on you. Are you threatening me? No, like I said, you didn't steal it. She did. It was just me, I found myself saying. Are you sure that's your final answer? He stared at me, as if challenging me not to change my mind. That's my final answer, I confirmed, doing my best to outstare him. Okay, your funeral. I walked away, knowing how right he was.